Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So, um, we're at the 17th chapter, I think, of the Dhammapada, 17th or 18th. And this chapter is called the Dhammatavaga, or about the Dhamma. Uh, to me, this is one of the most impressive chapters in the Dhammapada, as it speaks very clearly and critically about what the wise Dhamma practitioner can expect and how that, how that practitioner holds the Dhamma and acts within that framework. But it also speaks critically of those who were practicing false dharmas during the Buddhist time. And it's, that's just as relevant today. Um, get right to it. And the, the whole theme of this chapter is right view and wrong view. The way we express our right view and wrong view is by evaluating or judging ourselves in relation to the world around us. The reason why I'm making a point of that is... It, it's almost frowned upon to judge anything today. Uh, and this, this falls into that, the nonsense of a one mind, collective consciousness and all that. Um, the Buddha never taught anything like that. He taught us to judge critically, but impartially, impersonally. And that's the key to happiness. To, it's the key to awakening. But, the Buddha's words, judging mindlessly does not define a judge. So right off the bat, the, the Buddha is saying, you're in trouble if you don't know how to judge appropriately, if you don't have right view. And it does not define your ability to see things clearly. Judging mindlessly does not define a judge. The wise one knows both right judgment and wrong, or right view and wrong view. The wise judge offers... The wise judge... Sorry. The wise judges others impartially, mindfully. And consistent with the Dhamma, the framework is our, is our frame, the Dhamma is our framework for judging and evaluating the world around us. The wise guard the Dhamma and are guarded by the Dhamma. Establish in right view, intelligent, this one can be called the judge. I love some of these lines, and especially this one. Simply talking often, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Simply talking often does not define wisdom, although sometimes it can. Secure in knowledge, free of fear and aversion, this one can be called wise. That, if you're evaluating anyone, and I'm not just talking about a Dhamma teacher, just someone who might be offering you advice, and if that advice is couched by fear and aversion, you're likely not going to take it. So it's a good way of judging within the Dhamma if someone knows what they're talking about. Are they full of fear and aversion, or are they talking freely about their own experiences? This one can be called wise. Simply talking often does not maintain the Dhamma. Hearing little but integrating heartwood is, the, is one mindful of the Dhamma. And they are one who maintains the Dhamma. Gray hair does not define an elder or a teacher. You have to have the Dhamma. Advanced in years, lacking heartwood. Heartwood is always a reference to the Eightfold Path. Advanced in years, lacking heartwood, one remains foolish. One who knows the truth, the Four Noble Truths, mindful of restraint, of good character, gentle, in control of thoughts, words, and deeds, the defilements vanquished, awakened, 
this one can be called an elder and a teacher. In other words, they've done the work internally, they've developed a Dhamma, and this is someone that we can listen to. Not by sophisticated rhetoric or the donning of colored robe does, does, an en- does an envious and miserly imposter become a sage at peace. I kind of messed it up, so let me read it again. Not by sophisticated rhetoric or the donning of colored robes does an envious and miserly imposter become a sage at peace. So the Buddha recognized something that was common during his time, and I can tell you it's just as common today, of putting on the robes of, of Buddhism or the robes of a holy man, per se. Putting on the robes doesn't guarantee anything, does it? And we've all experienced that. So the Buddha is saying, look beyond the robes, look beyond the appearances, and look at the substance of what you're being taught. One who has uprooted arrogance and hatred, abandoned ignorance, and developed wisdom, they can be called the sage of peace. And so how do we know that? We know by the way the person is holding themselves, but it's also a good idea to understand a little bit more about that person. So I've had teachers, world-famous teachers, that, um, I'll speak carefully, that could not manage their own lives, that were addicted to drugs or sex or all kinds of different things, and yet were preaching and being accepted as wise Dhamma teachers. And I always thought, even while I was sitting at their feet, why am I listening to this person that cannot even apply these things they're saying to their own selves? And that gnawed at me for a little while until I realized why, because they didn't know what they were talking about, clearly. Because if you can't apply it to yourself, it, it's of no value to me or anyone else, is it? And the proof is in the pudding. It's always in the pudding. And the pudding meaning how you live your life, but also practicing right speech, right action, and right livelihood in every thought, word, and deed that you have. And we have three, three of our teachers are here. They're teachers because they can do that. They've developed the Dhamma to that level. Or they wouldn't be teachers here. We have three teachers online, teachers in training. They're developing that same understanding. In order to teach it, you have to know it, and to know it, you have to experience it. And that leads to the practitioner who's listening to us. You, you that aren't teachers, that are students, you're giving us your time. We better have something to give back to you or we shouldn't be doing this. And that's how you should take your teachers. And I hope you, I hope you are that critical of us here because in that way you'll see that what we're teaching is useful and skillful. A shaven head does not equal concentration, but it doesn't take away from it either. Dismissing the heartwood. Again, think about that the Buddha saying this 2,600 years ago just as relevant today. Putting on the robe, shaving your head does not mean you know anything. And I shaved my head long before I knew anything. Dismissing the heartwood, consumed by greed, there is no concentration. One who abandons greed, aversion, and deluded thinking through, through non-distraction, establishing jhana moment by moment, this one can be called well-concentrated, a true contemplative. Seeking alms, donning robes, mindless rituals do not define a sincere Dhamma practitioner. That first line... Uh, seeking alms, donning robes, and mindless rituals. That was my Buddhist practice for the first 10 years or so of of Buddhist practice. And I kept wondering, why am I not getting anywhere? Why do I feel the same way now as frustrated I was before I began whatever practice that was? Because I was just donning the robes and practicing the rituals. I was bowing correctly and sitting correctly and and chanting correctly. And all that that was, all of it was just a continuing distraction 
that I had been living my whole life. It was the same distraction I found in the bottom of a bottle of vodka because it took me out of this moment. And it satisfied the immediate need to be different than I was, but it didn't give me anything to become. And that was a significant difference that I found when I came to the Buddhist Dhamma. Only those that abandon both gaining merit and the defilements, living always with restraint, with wisdom, this one abides. Only those that abandon gaining merit. All of Buddhist practice, 90% of Buddhist practice was presented to me as gaining merit as the point of the, of the practice. Excuse me. Meaning that if you did certain things or you gave of usually money, at some point in the future, you would, you would reap the benefits of that merit. And even though I did that, and I did it gleefully, I always wondered, what good is that doing me now? And I didn't understand that frustration again until I came to the Buddha's Dhamma. What I was looking for since I was a little boy was how to live my life successfully now. I was brought up in a religion that told me if I was a good boy now, I would get my reward after I'm dead. That seemed, even at, a, at 10 years old, that seemed like I was wasting my life for that. But I didn't understand it until I came across what Siddhartha Gautama taught. The reward of human life is living it. The reward of human life is living it. In order to live it, I have to be in this body, in this moment. That's what jhana meditation brings us. It gives us the foundation to be present. And the framework of the Eightfold Path allows us to see what's occurring through right view. hope everybody gets that. Living always with restraint, with wisdom, this one abides. This one can be called a Dhamma practitioner. The Buddha's words, listen to this. And, and those of you that have been on endless silent retreats, seven, ten day sashins, wondering what the hell you're doing there, 2,600 years ago the Buddha said, it is not by silence does the confused and deluded, the ignorant, become a sage at peace. And I sat endlessly in silence, literally losing my mind, just wanting to say hello to someone or even smile at someone. And I couldn't do it because I wanted to be the right practitioner. I wanted to gain the benefit of that fabrication that if I just shut my mouth and shut out the world, somehow I'd gain understanding of who I was and the world around me. It didn't make sense then, although I practiced it. I'm making a point of this. I practiced it diligently because others were telling me this is what I should do. It was what was modeled. And because I wanted what I thought they had, I went along with it. I was the cause of my distress. Nobody else. I was befuddled. I was confused. And I didn't have a practice that allowed me to see that confusion until I came to what the Buddha taught. And he says, But the wise one, able to discern the ordinary from the excellent, rejects what is evil. And I'm not talking about immoral evil. Anything that takes us out of this moment is evil in this context. And becomes a sage at peace. Those who are able to discern both sides of the world. Imagine if people could do that today. We're so stuck in polarized little tribes that no one can see anybody else. From 2,600 years ago, those who are able to discern both sides of the world, the foolish and the heartwood, were able to see it clearly. In other words, the Buddha is saying we have to have the ability to judge what is foolish and what is heartwood, what is unskillful and what is skillful. We need to have both of those components within ourselves. 
if we're going to see clearly. And it, does, and it makes sense, doesn't it? How can we live in the world if we insist that we only see one view? Some might call it a Pollyannish view. And if there's anything that we see in the world that doesn't fit that view, it's wrong. Well, it's not wrong. It's part of the world. And if I reject any part of the world, I'm rejecting a part of myself. I cannot live in the world if I do that. I have to allow for everything that occurs in the world to occur in the world. It's the difference between, between acceptance and approval. We certainly do not, do not approve of the hurtful things in the world. But we learn to accept them. Why? Because they're what's occurring. Anything else is taking what's occurring in a personal way. It's saying, I don't want this. As soon as you do that, you've lost your mind. It doesn't mean you have to contribute to it or even support it. But it does mean you recognize it and you judge it correctly. Those who are able to discern both sides of the world, the foolish and the heartwood, can be called the sage of peace. Remaining harmless to all living things, one becomes noble. So you want to know how to practice the Dhamma? Develop harmlessness to all living things, but it has to begin with yourself. Because if you're judging yourself harshly, that's called self-loathing. That's where it begins. If you're, if you're there, you will always judge others harshly. When you cease judging yourself harshly, when you're free of self-loathing, then you will allow other people to be exactly as they are. A simpler way of saying it, when we stop judging ourselves, we stop judging others. That's why I always say, and you hear it throughout the Dhamma, we must learn to be very gentle with ourselves. And gentleness is the absence of judgment. Because anytime I'm looking at myself saying, oh, I didn't meditate long enough or hard enough, or, or I didn't focus my breath long enough, or I didn't listen to that bald-headed guy talk so much, all of those things are self-loathing. They're harsh judgments. Whenever we find ourselves doing that, or even a view, if we're not saying, well, I'm not, I'm not compassionate enough about people in the world, that's a harsh view. And if you really want to be compassionate to other being, human beings, let go of the view that you're not compassionate enough because that's a harsh judgment against yourself. We are all we ever will be in this moment. We are all we ever will be in this moment. And we're unlimited in our potential to understand. Can everybody reconcile what I just said? Yes. Because in the next moment, we can be what we now understand to be. We can grow from ignorance to, to, to profound wisdom, as the Buddha teaches, through this simple path that's rooted in jhana meditation. And what does that mean? What does it look like to have that kind of profound understanding? The Buddha teaches us over and over again. It's called the sage of peace. Remaining gentle to all living things, one becomes noble. Friends, the Buddha's words, friends, don't be fooled by your practices or your habits, by your sophisticated rhetoric. 2,600 years ago, by your meditative superiority. I used to hear people talk about how long they would sit in meditation. I, I, this just popped into my head. I was on, I can't remember where the retreat was, but I happened to be talking to um, one of the um, junior monks, and he, and he was talking almost angrily about, I meditate 14 hours a day, oh, 14 hours a day, and he, he could almost feel the anger in his voice, and so I had to ask him, what are you getting out of it? And he said, oh, I don't know, I'm just supposed to do it. 14 years! <clears throat> 
But because of his conditioned thinking that this was going to bring him some benefit in the future, he, get, he lost the ability to recognize it was not bringing him anything now. He was distracted by the sophisticated rhetoric. The Eightfold Path gives us the framework to recognize the sophisticated rhetoric and simply, by your meditative, by your meditative support, su superiority or a quiet dwelling, that does not establish it. The proof is in the pudding. Friends, don't be fooled by the thought that you... Sorry. Friends, don't be fooled by the thought that you teach those that don't know. When you are complacent, where greed, aversion, and, de and delusion continue... Here is where the heart would is forgotten. I'm going to read that again. When you are complacent, meaning smug in your practice, just because everybody else is doing what you're doing, it must be good. When you are complacent, where greed, aversion, and delusion continue, here is where the heart would is forgotten. So the reason why I read that, that's the end of the chapter two. The reason why I read that, and I mentioned it earlier here in class before we got started, I was fortunate enough to study with many of the I shouldn't use the word many, with, with a good number of the well-known modern Buddhist teachers. And I was always noticed that many of them were not able to control even the most basic um, compulsions of human life, meaning being addicted to drugs, alcohol, and sex, and, and food often, uh, and other things. And at the time, I overlooked it because they were, they were speaking with uh, sophisticated rhetoric. But I always question, how could they be teaching something that they can't apply in their own lives? And it gnawed at me, and it gnawed at me in a skillful way, because eventually they got me to realize they can't be teaching anything that's of any value. And many people have argued with me. I've gotten to rather extreme arguments with people over the Internet and on the phone that that doesn't necessarily mean that the underlying teaching is somehow flawed. Well, it does, doesn't it? If I can't live what I'm teaching, why would you listen to me? If I can't tell you how to bang it, if I tell you to bang in a hammer with a piece of paper, you're going to stop listening to me very quickly. It's the same thing. And I noticed through many of these lineages that it wasn't just the leader that was caught up in these types of behaviors. And that it was often excused through, through generations through these lineages. And I, I don't want to sound like I'm getting on my high horse, but I'm going back to the beginnings of, of Zen meditation in the West. Every single, be careful what I'm saying. Every single generation has been scarred by sexual or, or um, drug abuse, sexual misconduct or drug abuse. And I'm not just talking about the Zens. I'm talking about you cannot find a my again. I sound like I'm on a high horse. I'm not trying to beat anybody up or discount anything. I'm just making the point of, that the Buddha made 2,600 years ago. You can't find a lineage, a modern Buddhist lineage, that is not affected by this, that is not stained by this. And it's always explained away. So I was, I was a member of, of one major organization, still functioning today, probably hasn't lost many people, that the entire hierarchy, almost entirely, is engaged in behavior that is literally inhuman. But it's explained away. It's constantly explained away. And it's explained away by the Dharma, the Dharma that they're teaching itself because of the sophisticated rhetoric. The sophisticated rhetoric is, is hiding the ignorance that it's, that it's designed to do. So that, that's my speech. Um, to bring it back into 
this chapter and get away from that exciting talk I just had, this, this Dharma brings the ability to see these things clearly. And so I was not able to see what was going on around me and what I was participating in and supporting, by the way, because I didn't have any way to see it. I had to find another way, a right view way, to see the wrong view that I was living in, that I was conditioned to believe. And it was only the Buddha's Dhamma that allowed me to escape that. I don't know why I was able to find this and nobody else has. I I can't explain that. Because I'm studying the same uh, suttas that everybody else is. But there was something inside me that that just thought that an awakened human being could not teach something that would lead to this type of behavior, this type of mass behavior. And that's what kind of forced me to look deeper into at the suttas. And that's when I realized that the Buddha taught something incredibly gentle that includes every human being as long as they practice it. And every human being can develop this profound level of morality, even though it's not a moral teaching. Not by fear, not by intimidation, not by a promise of some, some uh, heaven in the future, but right here and right now, in this lifetime through jhana meditation and the other seven factors of the heart with the Eightfold Path. That's my talk for today. Uh, let's, we'll go on online first. Jeff, how are you this morning? Well, thanks. And yourself? I'm doing good. Thank you. Good. Hey, John, thanks for that teaching. That, that, uh, I'm a little distracted this morning, and that kind of helped me uh, yeah. come back to where I, I need to be. Uh, but I think I'll take noble silence, if that's all right. That's certainly all right. I'm glad you joined us, Jeff. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, John. Um, yeah, apologies again for the background noise. I think you can hear correctly. All right, great. Um, so, yeah, thanks for the teachings um, today. Uh, yeah, I, I just have a question, really. Um, you, you talk about, obviously, um, the importance of the... Um, the conduct of the messenger right, when it comes to these teachings. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a question for you and possibly even for any of the teachers that are in the room with you, actually. Um, how do you know, or how did you know, that you were ready to teach? That you hadn't just understood, the, you weren't just inspired by the teachings conceptually, and you weren't just at the beginning of your path. such a great question I should Tom is Tom and Alex and Mateo are online and they are in teacher training Uh, so it's it's certainly an important question for him but for all of us Um, honestly Tom for me to answer that question I have to tell you I didn't know nobody nobody told me that I was ready to teach I was just asked um, by a person who had to worked in the next building if I would just teach they knew that I was a long time meditator and they asked if I would teach meditation uh, to raise money for their uh, particular charity. It's like a, a, the Global Alternative Healthcare Project for alternative practitioners, like Doctors Without Borders, but for alternative practitioners. So I agreed to do that, but very quickly, 
um, I realized that if I was going to do that, I had to teach something that I knew was useful. And so instead of teaching this kind of generalized meditation practice, I, after two weeks, I started teaching jhana meditation. And um, I had a, a very well-established practice for myself. And I knew that it worked for me. I knew that I had developed a calm and peaceful mind, that my relationships with people were much better. Um, but I, it was never put to the test until I started teaching. And I don't want this to sound arrogant, but very quickly I realized that I must know what I'm, I must be living what I'm teaching because other people were able to develop it. And by the way, that's why I run these classes. That's why I want participation from everyone because then I know that I'm teaching it skillfully because if nobody's getting it, it's not their fault. It's my fault, isn't it? I mean, this is my class. I'm teaching it. I better be able to teach it. So that was, that's really what gave me the initial authority. But now I'll ask our other teachers, how, why do they feel that they can teach? So let me start with David, he's right here. I understood when I realized that... Can you, everybody here, there's a lot of noise here. Can you hear David? Yes, no? Yes, if you can speak up as much as possible, that would be great. <laughs> I came to understand that I was ready. First of all, Jen asked me. So that gave me the confidence to really evaluate that I was ready because I wasn't skipping the second and third noble truths. I wasn't just practicing some form of dharma in the fourth noble truth. That I was incorporating the entire four noble truths. And until that moment, I knew I wasn't ready. Uh, so, again, it's right view, and people are anxious to get practicing into the fourth noble truth because that's where all the action is. But the understanding of the truly the first three have to be there for you before you can teach. That's such great insight, especially that part about that people want to teach the fourth noble truth because that's where all the action is. It is. But actually all the action is is in the understanding of what we're developing and understanding of is the nature of stress and suffering. Thank you, David. Jen, what do you have to say about that? Great question. Hi, Tom. Thank you for your question. Tom, a teacher, Jen. Um, I, I don't have an eloquent answer for you. I really can just say that um, you know, as I started, when I started practicing to the point where I started teaching, um, I felt as though just based on my interactions with the Sangha and with John that, um, teaching was going to be happening for me. Um, and sometimes I would experience resistance around that and feel like I didn't want to do that. And sometimes I would feel like, um, it was the right thing for me to be doing. And I just continued to come back to what was happening and, you know, ask my, just try to be in right view and try to stay in right view around, um, my calling to, to teach the Dhamma. And um, 
when I finally, you know, and it was just, oh, let me just start doing the teacher training and oh, let me just continue to, you know, I was just sort of tried to stay with the experience of it. And then once I started, once I did my first teaching with just the teachers, you know, uh, slowly I became more accepting of the reality that I was teaching the Dhamma. <laughs> If that makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense. So it was more of like just constantly staying present with life as life occurs around my Dhamma experience. And, and it just led me into teaching. Yeah. The Dhamma guided your Dhamma teaching right, practice. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jen. Ram. Dhamma teacher Ram. Uh, um, In my, my previous practices, <clears throat> I've always struggled with being able to explain that practice to other people. And um, it was actually, it became a touchstone for me that if I could not explain my own practice to others, that really meant that <clears throat> it wasn't quite working. Mm. And um, it really wasn't until years into um, sometimes reluctantly practicing these teachings that I got to the point where that started becoming easier. Um, you know, being invited to, to become a teacher and, and the structure of, of the teacher training helped a lot. Mm. Um, but um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a circular thing, actually. Um, <clears throat> as you're practicing, you, I, as I'm practicing, I want to teach. But I notice that as I'm teaching, my practice grows stronger. Yeah. Um, there, these things are connected, um, and and there are many suttas where where the Buddha uh, um, emphasizes the the importance of teaching, uh, and even in 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 the early sangha, um, you know, that was an issue. And uh, for instance, when, when the, the monks went out for the, on their alms rounds, they were supposed to, to as, a, as a thank you, um, deliver a, a short teaching. And um, that was strictly for their own benefit. Yeah. So that they, again, could explain what they were doing. And if you can explain what you're doing clearly, that means you you've got something real in your hands, um, so that that's where where my um, and and I have to tell you too that this is an ongoing thing. Uh, it's not that one day all of a sudden you think ah you know I can do yeah, this yeah. boom I'm done. Mm -hmm. No, every time you sit down in that seat and you face the uh, the sangha, um, you're you're being challenged. Uh, you're challenging yourself, um, but the benefits are are tremendous. Um, hopefully for the sangha as well. But um, remember, this is a practice, and this is part of a practice. 
a very important part. Uh, thank you, Ralph. Uh, and, and so I would add, as I always do, that uh, all the years that I practiced Buddhism, I was never ever taught Four Noble Truths or an Eightfold Path. I certainly wasn't taught, I was taught meditation, but not jhana meditation. Um, <clears throat> I was never really taught anything that I found that the Buddha actually taught. I was taught a lot of concepts and um, things about how to be and, and gaining merit. A lot of it was gaining merit, um, but I never learned anything. I never learned anything about what the Buddha taught until I studied what the Buddha taught, which makes sense now because they didn't have that knowledge to teach. You can't teach what you don't know. Uh, again, it's not a knock on anyone, um, but I'm, I just feel so fortunate that the Buddha's dominant is still here. I still have a mind that's able to understand, and it's not that there's anything special about my mind. I, it's a human, an ordinary human mind. And again, even that's remarkable, because always, I was always, it was always presented in a way as a kind of... Um, like a, a hierarchy of specialness, that, that you had to prove yourself before you could get anything out of this. Um, again, that, that, never, that never felt right to me, but I went along with it. But as, as we see here in what Ram just said too, that when, you, when you're teaching, you're taking in everybody's experience, not just your own. So it broadens your understanding of the Dhamma in a way that's not possible if you're just a solo practitioner. But that doesn't mean that you have to teach either. They're, um, Sariputta and Moggallana were two of the original Sangha members, and they were both very different in their approach. And Sariputta was someone that taught often, and the Buddha would go to him often. Moggallana was someone that preferred to be isolated and uh, somewhat separated from the world. Uh, and so he only taught occasionally when the Buddha would, would summon him in from the, from the forest and say, you know, I want Moggi to teach here. Uh, but that's... that's that's the nature of teaching too. Um, so Tom, you're learning, um, you're learning how to teach and you're also developing the confidence to teach because you're also gaining the underlying knowledge. Uh, and uh, I, I, think, I think you would say yes to that. Am I, am I putting words in your mouth when I say that? No, yeah. <laughs> Why are they laughing at me? <laughs> Yeah. Don't they know who I am? Yeah, um, yeah no, thanks, thanks for everyone's input. I think it's a, it's that idea of um, teaching itself being a way of reinforcing your own practice and strengthening your own practice and challenging yourself, which yeah. is quite appealing to me. It's just sometimes that idea of, um, you know, there's a few quotes here where it's, it sort of it it suggests that you have to have everything. Uh, I can't find the quotes right now, but there's just a few word lines there where it's like suggests you have to have it all completely figured out. And while you know the right view part is is a lot easier, it's the it's the sort of full integration of the Dharma into your life, which is obviously the ultimate challenge. And so it's just knowing when when you're ready to take that next step but anyway this is something i'm sure we can i'd love to discuss in future future meetings and stuff like oh, that oh we will yeah thank you Tommy. and the buddha is describing the in in this chapter the um one who has completed the path but of course we we don't 
um, we don't have to be there in order to be able to teach the Dhamma. And remember the Buddha, excuse me for a moment, Siddhartha didn't awaken and immediately start teaching. He didn't hang out his shingle for a couple more weeks. It, and he really thought, that, did he have the ability to teach this? And how could he do it? And what he was considering was, what can I teach? What method can I use to pierce that veil of ignorance? Because he knew how, how, um, how thick that veil was. And in contemplation, that's when he decided on the framework of an eightfold path for the sole purpose of, of piercing that veil of ignorance. That same path is what we're teaching as teachers. It's nothing new. We're not developing anything. So it's, we, we can take refuge in confidence that we're teaching something that we know is effective. We've experienced it ourselves and we've seen it for 2,600 years. What a great question, Tom. Uh, but you're, please, we'll talk about what, whatever you think about this chapter, too. We don't have to te- talk about teaching. Hello, Brian. Hi, John. How are you? Good. Thanks for asking. Good. Um, yeah, I, I just got a lot of comfort out of this one um, that, that you don't have to be fancy. You don't have to be uber intelligent. You, you don't have to do anything crazy or outlandish. You just just walk the path, do the yeah. work, um, partake in the sangha. And, you know, that, that's, okay. that's kind of it. You know, there's nothing nothing crazy or otherworldly about it. Yeah, It's just profoundly comforting, so thank you. Yeah, it is. Thank you for saying it. We don't have to shave your head or put on crazy robes or do crazy things. You just <laughs> practice the Dhamma, and, and it works. So. Thanks, I didn't Brian. I shave my head anyway, but yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't grow hair anymore, so, you know. That was my, yeah, I, I got tired of hanging on a scrap, so I just shaved the rest of all. <laughs> Hello, Mary. Good morning. Did you say Mary? I couldn't hear you. Good morning, Mary. <laughs> Good morning. Um, this is, um, you know, practical advice for living. Um, and I think that we have to recognize when we're, um, when we and others are living skillfully or unskillfully. Um, I like the way you um, differentiated, you know, the word judge in this case, and that was very clear and very helpful. Um, I think also as practitioners or teachers, um, recognizing when we, um, the absence of contributing to the entanglement in the world. So you said we don't have to contribute and, um, that's, so critical. So in looking back at say the week you just had and how you navigated your, you know, personal professional life, um, and, and being gentle and acknowledging for yourself when you, the absence of contributing to something that made it more entangled, Mm -hmm. um, when you were able to, like some of my notes were, uh, I can recognize that I remain harmless in a certain situation, which, you know, to Brian's point about it's comforting is it's not only acknowledging where you didn't do some behaviors that you might have done before that were unskillful, it may be a reflection that you're judging yourself less. Yes. And wouldn't that be a beautiful thing mm-hmm. that each of us can contribute to ourselves um, and the world to cease judging ourselves 
um, I, I wrote down, we are all we ever will be in this moment. I mean, that's like, yeah, you can't argue with that. That makes a lot of sense. And the whole idea of remaining gentle, I actually say that a lot to some of the people that I mentor um, in my work because they don't, you know, you can now hear, you know, we're, we're all, I guess, practitioners and teachers in a way. Um, because now you can hear when somebody's saying something that's in your world that might be coming from a place of judging themselves and they don't even realize that. So it's so refreshing to others to be able to say, you know, be gentle with yourself here. You know, you, you might have been able to be a little more skillful here, but be gentle with yourself because it's, it's okay. And then I guess the last thing that I really... Um, enjoyed as a sort of a marker of holding yourself uh, responsible to the commitment of the Dhamma. And um, here is recognizing that here is where the heart word is forgotten because that's where you find the greed, aversion, and compulsion. So being able to self-identify that, again, as you're looking back on your day or your week or whatever, or you're preparing for uh, a conversation or you're preparing for your week ahead and how to live in the world with this practice so that you experience those moments of validation and of knowing. I know you've said that, John, where there's a knowing that occurs that I'm sure happens for the teachers as well that gives them that readiness, that there's a knowing that I don't know everything, but I know what I know, and I feel really, I've experienced it, I've integrated it, I've, you know, navigated uh, the planet, and, yeah. uh, and, and I've been able to hold myself, you know, harmless to others. So I'm sorry that was a little wordy, but this was really just so beautiful, John. Thank uh, you. That was beautiful, Mary. You, you, you described wise restraint so wonderfully. And that's that's pure that what Mary described is how how a skillful Dhamma practice can actually contribute to lessening conflict in the world, because Mary was able to tell that person to be gentle with yourself instead of buying into whatever upset that person had. That brings that brings true peace and true healing, doesn't it? Instead of giving into someone's grievance, the Buddha teaches that it's only fools that grieve. Why does he say that? Because that's what you're focusing on. But the wise will say, be gentle with yourself. You don't need to grieve over all the, all the wrongs that have been done you. Who are you in this moment? Who are we going to be? I mean, that's really an important question. What do I want to be in this moment? Because that's up to me. It's not up to anything outside of myself or any other person or any situation. That's power. That's true power. It's skillful power. It's gentle power. It's the power to be who I am. When I was a, a confused and crazy 12 and 14 year old grasping after substances to make sense out of my life was because I didn't know. And once I knew, I stopped. Once I knew, I stopped and I stayed here. I stayed within this Dhamma. You know, I used to read voraciously, um, mostly um, Buddhist stuff. And that, said that, 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 that stood me in good standing. But I don't read that stuff anymore. It's just that it doesn't interest me. And the same is with the rest of my life. It's just, 
it's very simple. To the outside, I think people would look at my life and, and think it would be excruciatingly boring. But it's just peaceful. It's what I always wanted. I don't have all the things that I always wanted. I don't have a brand new car and a big boat and brand new golf clubs and I'm not six foot four. <laughs> but my life is incredible. It's because I don't need those things anymore. If, I, if they came along, I don't know about six foot four because I have low ceilings, but if it came along... <laughs> but the, and, and the laughter, you know, there's another thing I was talking to someone last night. We laugh a lot in our classes, in our song, and on our retreats. I didn't see that much in other places. I think I'm not putting them down, but it, it, mm-hmm. it shows me how... Human uh, Yes, because hum, the human experience is an absurd experience. <laughs> and we have to learn to laugh at it, don't we? And we learn to laugh at it here. We can laugh, truly laugh at ourselves. And we can laugh at each other, but not in a mean way. Jan brought up... Jen brought, Jan. Jen brought up the, how mean people have become in this world. We've lost a lot of that meanness. Why? Because we're no longer mean to ourselves. We're treating ourselves gently. Thank you, Mary. Uh, John, it's good to see you this morning. How are you? There we go. There we go. Good morning, John. Thank you for the teacher. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Um, (laughs) There's a lot here, but I take notes like Mary does on some things that strike me. And, um, you know, something, um, gentleness is the absence of judgment. And, you know, before I started studying this a bit more and seeing things, you know, I, I came to a, a, an observation that we all have, and society puts pressure on us to have a condition or we condition judgment on others. Yep. And you need to meet or fit a mold. You don't fit a mold. Things have gotten meaner over the years. It, it appears. Um, I hope it's not true, but if you have right view, you can recognize that yeah. and recognize that it, you don't need to have that in yourself, and you can step away from that and and not be judgmental of others in a harmful way, uh, but be gentle on them and and understand that they're not um, they're just not recognizing things quite perhaps the right way or perhaps in a way that's more open uh, to, uh, to right view yeah. and, to, and to being good with one another. And uh, that's not an easy thing to, uh, to accomplish, it, it seems, but it's there. Um, I'll just say one other thing that I wrote down. The reward of human life is living it. Mm-hmm. And you said that earlier. And that's, that, that, that was one of the first things I wrote down. I'm like, that's... that's that's the key here, you know. It's it's now. <laughs> it's not tomorrow. It's it's not the afterlife or anything like that. It's it's about right now. Yeah. And what we're gonna do when we finish up this call and go on with the rest of our day and interacting with other people in our lives, and um, that, that that those are the things that struck me the most of this teaching. And thank you. Yeah, thank you. And those are the things <laughs> that strike me the most too. And and the it's the the simplicity of it, the utter simplicity of it. The obviousness of it is is, is uh, it's surprising that that it that it isn't so obvious that being present for right now is the answer rather than where I'm going or where I came from. You know, but we hug that. Thank you, John. Thank you. Good morning, Alex. Good to see you. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. How are you doing? Um, 
Yeah, great, great. Yeah. I've, I've really enjoyed it today. It's, it's, I've had a really madly sociable week um, without much Dharma intervention or obvious yeah. Dharma intervention. So it's nice to be surrounded by you guys and talking on, on this level. Um, yeah, and I, I just echo Mary and John's points that they noted that the reward of human life is living it. That stood out a lot to me. And we are all we will ever be in this moment. <clears throat> It just makes so much sense, and um, they're brilliant sayings yeah. too. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just I'm just joking. Brilliantly I... said, yeah, of course. The, the whole class was brilliantly done, um, as always. Um, I pay him to say but, that. Um, it just like what you were just saying then about the human experience being absurd, and because you're you're right, and we should laugh at it because yeah. it is. It is. But it's only it's absurd until we come across teachings like this for me this makes it less absurd yeah this one i've really enjoyed today because it gives me a, a way to view it and the right way to view it just gives me uh it makes a lot of sense and i can't argue with it and it's like okay that's that's how i want to view things because it makes so much sense and it makes it yeah. feel less absurd yeah um to to to, to establish right view <clears throat> so yeah thank you for for the teachings and in particular today's one because I've, I've really enjoyed it and got a lot from it it's been a quite a week for me so so thank you for for, for kind of grounding me and bringing me back in touch with this well th thank you alex and thank yourself for putting yourself here you know again you, you should acknowledge that it's important that you do it you know it, there's a paradox there because uh, what you just said that once we understand the dhamma we don't see life as so absurd and yet I recognize the absurdity in in not knowing even more, and I see it much more. Uh, just the, the the contradictions that people say, you know, and uh, it, it's really surprising. The people that that are uh, screaming at other people about how awful they are and portraying themselves as saviors, and it's just such a contradiction. How can that be? You know, but, uh, the the world has polarized itself into these absurd views, which is just what they are. Uh, we've lost the ability to see in, because in this tribal mentality, we've lost the ability to see any goodness in people that, that simply disagree with the way we look at things. It's, and that's absurd, isn't it? You know, we, we, we're all living on this planet. We should give each other the space to be who they are. I mean, I've always felt like that. But the should doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen, does it? So what are we left with? What's a person like me? You know, who never could understand anything and couldn't understand the violence and the poverty and all the other things that we do, racism and all that. How do you deal with it? The only way to deal with it is through understanding and understanding the absurdity of it all. And in that way, as Mary was saying, in that way we can bring peace to others because we have ended conflict in our own mind. And then we can extend that out into the world. And we're doing it. That's what you just said too, Alan. So thank you and I'm glad you joined today. Let's go to the back. We'll start with Adam. <coughs> Um, well, I want to uh, thank you for teaching. I want to thank Tom for his fascinating question. Yes. And I want to thank um, Brian and Mary for their observations who spoke to me this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Good morning, Becky. Good morning. Good morning, Ruth. Thank you, John. Um, I feel the same way as Adam. Uh, this, this, was a, this is a great teaching. It's 
it really shows you the direction that your practice needs to go in each moment. Like the idea of the moment by moment. And that's something that I often forget. Um, that you, and the concentration that you need to not forget that is, uh, that's what the practice is about, developing that concentration that you need to, to keep that with you all the time. Yeah. But the, and, and, and to that end, the thing that I loved about this, the thing that I wrote down is, those who are able to discern both sides of the world, the foolish and the heartwood, can be called a sage at peace. And that seems to be what your moment-to-moment -moment goal should be, yeah. to be able to discern both sides without entangling yourself in them. And today, as you point out, it's really difficult to do that. Yeah. Um, but you can do it on your own personal level. Yeah. Like Mary said, which adds to your peace and to the peace of those around you. Well said. So thank, you, John. thank you for saying that. Worldly conditions have no bearing on whether an individual can develop the Dharma. Right. Nothing. Thank you. Lauren, what do you think of this crazy class here? <laughs> I loved it. Thank you so much for the teaching and to Laura for inviting yeah, me. Yeah, thank you, Laura. For creating such a welcoming atmosphere. It really so much resonated with me that you spoke about and everyone's reflections and um, just the power of each moment yep. is such a revelation. You know, it seems so obvious, but again, it's hard to carry that with you each and every moment. But it seems, you know, at the end of the day, if you feel that you've been able to hold on to a few of those moments of life, regardless of how trying or mundane or wonderful your day was, it seems like that could be a success. Yeah. And um, again, the just this crazy world of divisiveness and how everyone's you know choosing sides I just feel so much of what you spoke about today was, was resonant with that and I thought of a quote from the movie Dune of uh, fear is the mind killer yeah and that seems so relevant it is to every, everything yeah, so thank you so much yeah the, the, the Buddha says where there's fear there's desire desire leads to leads to all the problems that we have I'm so glad you joined us uh, have you been to the website yet, becoming-buddha.com? Not yet. When you go there, uh, you'll see on the, uh, right at the, the, the top page is a, uh, a section for uh, new visitors. Right. If you start there, that'll get you headed in the right direction, but I hope you continue to join us and, and uh, practice with us. Thank you. Thank you. Laura, thank you for Lauren. <laughs> I'm going to start calling you, you know, I'm going to get that mixed up, but right now we'll say Laura. Thank you for bringing Lauren. What do you think of today's class and how's your practice? I'm very happy to be here. Thank you, John, for the teaching and everyone for the insight. Um, and I really loved what Becky uh, reminded us all about, um, and you, of course, and the Buddha, um, distinguishing between the heartwood and the foolishness and what you were telling us about 
um, distinguishing between acceptance versus approval, I find that sometimes it's difficult sometimes when we're oh, yeah. maybe trying to accept um, others or trying to show compassion to others when, um, you know, not only holding ourselves accountable and, and being in right view and, and having right speech and right intent, but if someone else is in wrong view and then out of fear of maybe offending that person, yep. we try to show compassion, but then it's like, am I actually showing true compassion or just yeah. kind of show, like concessing to their fabricated view? Mm -hmm. Like you were saying, in this world we're all, or not we're all, but sometimes we are conditioned to think that... Um, we're going to offend someone else yeah. but really it's just their fabricated view so yeah. it's, it's tricky to navigate all of this in today's mm -hmm. world yeah th thank you for that it, it is tricky um, at times when we don't want to offend people mm -hmm. and that's where wise discernment comes in you know I don't uh, the only place I ever talk about the Dhamma is here in class or you know on a zoom session uh, I don't get on a street corner and say, you know, everybody's got to <laughs> repent and, uh, be, because, because I'm just creating conflict in the world, I'm not. Yeah. But the wise discernment comes in a one-on-one -on -one situation, just knowing mm -hmm. that this person is rooted, the person I'm talking to is rooted in the wrong view, but am I, and what I have to say, is that going to help them or not? And if my answer to myself mm -hmm. is, it's not going to help, mm -hmm. I keep my mouth shut. Mm -hmm. That's noble silence. Noble silence is not something magnanimous that gets us somewhere. Noble silence is knowing when to keep your mouth shut. Right. And, and, and that's something that, you know, there were times in my life where I had trouble with that. I think, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so I, I, always, I don't know that this is like a, a, a fix-all for, for offending others, but I think it's always valuable to, to, to remind myself that if someone else is offended, it, even just to say, they might be offended by this, mm -hmm. um, or they are offended, or they could be offended, but not I am offending them. Yeah, and that's right. And it, that's that's part of life. I mean, people that get offended, and but it's not because of me. Yes, when when I know that I'm living and speaking within the framework of the eightfold path, I know that I can't do any harm to others because now I know I can't harm myself anymore, <laughs> and and then the words come freely. And appropriately. It's almost like the, the Vitaka Santana Sutta, the Buddha says, we gain the ability to, to think what we want to think when we want to think it. And we also gain the ability to say what we need to say when we need to say it. We also know when to keep our mouths shut. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, I, if, if there's one thing that I could bring into the world that I think would contribute to world peace more than anything else is shut up. <laughs> really. Just, 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 and I might even add another word to it that I won't say here, but it would, wouldn't it? Because we're we're starting wars over words. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, again, it's it's crazy. And the the other part that you touched on, the ability to to discern between um, approval and acceptance. Acceptance acceptance is a state and quality of mind lacking judgment, free of judgment. Mm -hmm. Approval is applying the judgment, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And that's where we lose our minds. Mm -hmm. Right. We think that we have to approve things that are that are already present. It doesn't matter if we approve of them or not. They're here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
let me learn to accept what's here. Let me learn to develop a conflict-free mind so that I can do, as Mary said, introduce that conflict-free mind to the world. And then I can ask other people to be gentle with themselves because I've done it myself. Laura, thank you so much. It's great. And I got it before I get to the teachers. Um, it was such a great example of a well-focused and well-informed sangha by what Becky said, what we've all said, but what Becky said and led by what Tom said. You know, that, that, that brought a, a, um, a very well-rounded session here by everybody participating. The responsibility that, I think it was Jen that touched on that, comes from they, Tom and Becky and all of us had to learn the Dhamma in order to, in order to be responsible within a Sangha this way. And even our newest member, Lauren, did the same thing because of the Dhamma. It's the Dhamma that guides us when we allow it. So, uh, I want to hear what Jen, Jen has to say. Oh, um, so what came through for me in this, in this teaching was, was um, the, the idea of my, you know, mindless judgment and, um, you know, that can be an obvious uh, experience in the mind, or it can also be very, very subtle sort of background, automatized, mm -hmm. conditioned um, tendency Sorry. of the mind. So there's a lot of, you know, physiologically and anatomically, however you want to say it, but we call it conditioning. These are mechanisms of the mind that are super, super subtle and insidious yeah. Yeah. that, uh, could can determine our our overall mind states or our overall yep. uh, they do. fourth foundation of mindfulness. Yep. And so, you know, the pra this practice is so important because we are interrupting and and retraining our mind to, uh, you know behave in a, a different way um, to interrupt those subtle mindless judgments that sort of frame our day-to-day -day lives um, with the breath and with the four foundations of mindfulness so we can use these practices to interrupt that subtle tendency to judge um, and also in this sutta is the is the direction from the Buddha on how to recognize sort of wrong judgment judgment that's in wrong view and judgment that is in right view yeah. so um, it's uh, you know again the Dhammapada is really is like a procedure manual. Yeah. 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 Good way of putting it. <clears throat> Thank you, Dhamma Teacher Jim. Good morning, Dhamma Teacher Ron. Good morning. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, great session. Um, yeah, one of the things on uh, in life is that you're <clears throat> it it can become a string of judgments. Yeah, um, it does. And in, in, you know, the pre-Dharma life, it, it was a, a just endless string of judgments, uh, either judgments of yourself, trying to judge things in the world, um, 
or being being goaded to judge things in the world, mm-hmm. being told you have yeah. to you, know, you have to have a judgment on this. Yeah. Um, and but living in the Dharma, living with the, the Eightfold Path, um, takes takes that away. Um, all the stress that comes from these you know, attempts at judgment huh. yeah. and, and the judgment that, that with that that comes from that, the, the judgment of yourself that you're not doing this right um, it just falls <laughs> away um, and you know this is where the Dharma is the great stress buster Yep. Uh, it's, it? it allows you to to go through your I day in, in such an easeful way. Uh, it, it's it's really it's really wonderful. So yeah. you know, judgment is always there, but uh, once you have that that foundation, um, these judgments become easy. The the conflict goes away because the judgment always, before the Dharma, the judgment always had a conflict right built right into it. Yeah. Because it was based on, on conflicted views. Yeah. So, uh, with this, things are good. You really put the fine point on it. Where does judgment come from? What's its root? It's rooted in greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. The three defilements. And it's also a necessary component of a human being. We can't live in the world without judgment. So we might as well develop right judgment from right view, free of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. Mm -hmm. And then our judgments of ourselves and others are impersonal. They're always conflict-free, as long as we address those three defilements. And so for me to judge a situation or another person differently is rooted in greed, wanting them to be different than they are, and aversion, not liking who they are. And all of that, that my relationship with that person is rooted in the third defilement, deluded thinking. It doesn't mean that if I'm sit- sitting in front of Adolf Hitler, i got to give him a kiss on the lips. <laughs> but it does mean that I don't hate him because of his deluded thinking. I understand it, no matter how egregious it might be. Or no matter how subtle it might be. That, now... That comes to uh, people that we're close to. That gets very, very difficult, mm-hmm. especially someone we might be living our whole lives with, or we see them often. Because then the urge to change that person is even more immediate, isn't it? But even more important to recognize three defilements in that situation. And be gentle with yourself, and we can be gentle with other people. Good morning, David. Dhamma teacher, David. Enough has been said. Are you telling me to shut up? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful class. Um, we'll finish with Meta as we always do, as long as I can find my, my Kindle. And um, we'll continue. I think this is the 17th or 18th. So there's eight more classes, I believe, in the Dhammapada. Um, and then I'll be announcing where we're going next. It's going to be another structured study that I'm putting together. Look at my. My we're, teacher's we're head nine, going. We're at 19. What's it going to be? What's that? Yeah, we're chapter at 19. 19. Chapter 19. Oh, wow. We're not doing the truth of happiness. Jeez. Well, I, sorry. Are we we're not doing the truth of happiness. We will, but uh, there's going to be a slight delay. Maybe. There's something else coming up. Okay. Ooh, wow. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs>
Oh, that's the So we'll finish with the, the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. So just take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. And let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. In the Buddha's words on metta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.